this series for Advent, and I've titled In Search of an Ending, and it's based on a quote by N.T. Wright, who probably is the greatest New Testament scholar in the English-speaking world alive today. He's written a tome. That means a book that is uh, better than 1,300 pages on the life of Paul. And he spent 40 years of his life studying the Apostle Paul. In those two volumes, he said, most Jews of Paul's day perceived themselves at a deep worldview level as living in a story in search of an ending. Living in a story in search of an ending. Obviously, if you listened to the text this morning from the prophet Isaiah, when he asserts that there is coming a time where nations will not learn war anymore, where they will beat their weaponry into plowshares, uh, we're obviously aware that we are not living in that time. The time that we live in uh, now seems ripe for warfare, not only among different nation groups, but even in our own country. So there is a sense in which we resonate with uh, this quote of rights, living in a story in search of an ending. We feel as though something has yet to be consummated. Uh, We're not quite where we should be. And because we're not quite where we should be, we're not in the consummation of the times as Isaiah saw it, uh, we live at risk. And we are very much in search of an ending, a right and proper ending. Wright goes on to say, if Israel's God was indeed faithful, and that's the title of his book, The Faithfulness of God, if Israel's God was indeed faithful, then the story could not simply collapse, implode, or self-destruct. Israel was the one people of the Creator God. How could this God not act at last to fulfill His promises? Their firm conviction was, one day our God will act, and this will all be different. So if you look at this uh, text more closely, there's a phrase in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse number 2. Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. The King James Version says it will come to pass in the last days. What is meant by Isaiah's use of this phrase, the last days or the latter days. Young says the period which is intended by the phrase the last days or the latter days is the age of the Christian church which began its course with the first advent of Christ. Because this is the first Sunday of Advent, we are once again reminded of Uh, to prepare ourselves for the first advent. And in so doing, we prepare ourselves for his second advent. 
Young says, it is not the present upon which the eyes of the Israelites are to be directed, but a time which is the end of the contemporary course of events when the Messiah will have come and the breach which sin had introduced between man and God will be healed. In the last days, in the latter days, what shall come to pass, Isaiah says, He says, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills, above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Young goes on to say, the figure of the exaltation of Zion is impressive. Now, one of the things that is helpful Uh, for us to kind of catch the rhythm and meaning of Isaiah's words is that Christians believe when we read in the Old Testament about Jerusalem or when we read about Mount Zion, that ultimately it has its fulfillment in uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So when you read in the Old Testament about Jerusalem, you read in the Old Testament about Mount Zion, you can, if you are a believer, a Christian believer, you can think about the church of God. The figure of the exaltation of Zion is impressive. At the time when Isaiah spoke, the very reverse was the case. The mountain was not exalted. The mount which now is comparatively insignificant, will one day surpass all others. Mountains and hills and all that is high will sink in importance before Zion. There's a corresponding passage to this uh, one in Isaiah 2 to be found in the book of Micah, and you have to go hunting for that at the end of your Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. Uh, Look in Micah chapter 4, almost identical uh, words. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Years ago in this church, there was a lady. Uh, there was in our church, we referred to it as the mothers of Israel. Um, they were five or six ladies who were, who were widows. And um, one of the ladies was named uh, Josephine Claspel. And uh, At that time when we had testimony service, uh, she would stand and often her testimony was a song. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where did she find this song? It was a scripture song, Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. 
the city of the great king. And when I first heard her sing that song, it was not a song that our church was particularly familiar with. It was not a song that I was familiar with. I asked that question again, what is, what is this mountain stuff? What is this mountain of the Lord? What is this about Zion? Well, it is the ending that we're all searching for, whether we understand the metaphorical language or not. I sometimes wonder about children's bedtime stories. For one, Little Red Riding Hood. I don't know how any child, if they were taught, read that story at night, could ever get to sleep. Because even though it ended up with uh, Little Red Riding Hood escaping by the skin of her teeth, uh, she was in great peril from uh, the big bad wolf. How about, I'll come and I'll huff and puff and blow your house down. The three little pigs. And sure enough, he did, right? If you didn't build your house out of the right material, your house was going to get blown to pieces. It was a, a scriptural lesson, I suppose. And one of the first lessons we learn is that the world is a dangerous place. And that if you don't live your life in regard to that fact, that you may suffer loss. Of course, that is a scriptural lesson that we all have to learn. The man who built his house on the sand, uh, the, the rain, the wind, the storm came, and great was the fall of that house. But the man who built his house on a rock, uh, his house was able to withstand the storm. I don't think that there is, I've tried to think of one person in or one family in our covenant community uh, that has not uh, faced a struggle this year. And as I think about the people that are here and I think about the people that are not here, I think every family to some degree has faced some difficulty. And we are sometimes tempted to think, well, that this is just the way it's going to be. We don't know how it's going to end. We don't know what the ultimate uh, result or outcome will be. And we are tempted, even on this first Sunday of Advent, where the theme is hope, we are tempted to just resign ourselves to sing along with uh, Doris Day, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours, you see. Kesara, Sarah. Isaiah takes issue with that. Even though things are not going to get better for a long, long time, and in fact, even in his lifetime, things will not necessarily improve. Uh, but he is still receiving this word from the Lord that there is a day coming, the latter days, the last days, when the mountain of the Lord shall be exalted. In Judaism, the Temple Mount, think with me, this is referred only twice in uh, the Old Testament as Mount Moriah. If you take a trip to uh, Jerusalem today, you'll fly, you'll land in Tel Aviv, and then you'll most likely get on a bus and 
and make the journey up to Jerusalem. And at some point in your stay, you'll visit the, the Temple Mount area. On the Temple Mount, of course, uh, there's a mosque that is built. And that mosque intrudes if the archaeologists have uh, given us the correct information that a corner of the mosque intrudes on the place where the temple once stood. But if you go to Jerusalem, you'll have uh, an opportunity to pray at what is known as the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is actually a wall of retention. It was built around the temple site proper so that dirt could be infilled and a flat place could be built to build the temple. But you'll go there and you'll see people praying, men on one side, women on the other um, there, and they're praying at the Wailing Wall, which is really a retaining wall. Uh, it's, it's not the temple itself. Some people say the temple will be rebuilt. I'm of the opinion that since Christ has come, who is the true fulfillment of that temple, that it won't be built. In Judaism, Temple Mount is the holiest place in the world. And it is believed God's divine presence has manifested there more than anywhere else. According to the Talmud, it was on this hill that God gathered the dust he used to create Adam, the first human. And some rabbis believe it is also the spot from which God created the world. So when even when you stand at the Wailing Wall, you are near to the place uh, where creation uh, began. The sacrifice of Isaac was the first significant event to take place on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, after the creation, which we have stories told for us in Genesis 22. Some also believe it was the location of Jacob's dream. Remember Jacob's Ladder and the place where King David purchased the threshing floor owned by Aruna the Jebusite. David, as we all know, had plans to build a sanctuary on the hill, but because he was a man of war, God reserved that privilege and duty for his son Solomon, who achieved this around 950 B.C. Israel's story, you see, their narrative had been one of sin, falling into sin and then driven into exile, but they still believed that there was a day coming in which there would be restoration. There's not much evidence left of what the second temple was like. Of course, uh, the first temple that Solomon built was destroyed. That was a moment of national crisis. Then the people were carried off into Babylon for 60 or 70 years. And then when God graciously brought them back to the land, they rebuilt the, the temple. This is known as Second Temple Judaism. And this temple we don't know much about, but Josephus tells us that the temple was a microcosm of the whole creation. So that when you went in to the, uh, even the outer courts and into the, the holy place, priests, of course, both Levitical 
and Aaronic priests, when they went into the holy place and on the Day of Atonement, the holiest of holies, um, their eyes would have been met with a sight that no other human beings would ever experience. Um, I imagine it was much like for us seeing television for the first time or uh, going to, um, I haven't been in a long time, you know, the, the old 3D screens where you went to the movie and you put the glasses on and everybody looked like they were in a movie from Mars sitting there watching 3D. It had to be much like that. Josephus describes the curtain in the second temple, which represented an image of the universe. So we've often heard about this curtain that upon Christ's death was rent in twain from top to bottom. But the curtain in the second temple represented an image of the universe, covered with symbolic colored embroidery and mystical figures. In the holy place were three wonderful works of art. The lampstand whose seven branches represented the seven planets. Of course, the seven planets were the only ones uh, that the ancients knew of that they could see with their naked eye. The table on which the twelve loaves represented the the circle of the zodiac, and the year, and the altar of incense on which were 13 spices from every part of land and sea. All this, according to Josephus, signified that all things are of God and for God. The point that I'm struggling to make this morning is that God, from the beginning, has always been invested in the redemption of his entire creation. Wright points out that Christian churches that have sprung from the Reformation understanding of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith have sometimes downplayed this point, that God is not just out to save us for an eternity in heaven. I believe that he has done that, he is doing that, and that he will do that but that God from the beginning is interested in redeeming everything that he's created. This is why when we read a passage like Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we as Christians sometimes are disconnected from it. We don't understand the language. We don't understand the metaphor. We don't understand what is this all about, the mountain temple of the Lord, why should we be focused on this passage on the first Sunday in Advent? One of the Psalms, and if you look with me in Psalm 24, we'll close with this. Psalm 24 is known as uh, 
a liturgical rite uh, psalm. This psalm was sung by the people on holy days. Uh, the rabbis taught that this psalm was to be read by believers on what we know as the first day of the week on Sunday. Uh, look at this psalm. So imagine you are, uh, you have come to Jerusalem from the rest of the land of Israel for one of the high holy days. That's where we get the word holiday from. For one of the high holy days. Typically, anywhere else that you lived in Israel, if you're going to, going to go to Jerusalem for a high holy day, it would involve an ascent, an upward climb. And when you finally got to Jerusalem, you uh, rejoiced in the fact that you had escaped uh, the sun by day, the moon by night, the band of robbers. All sorts of things could have befallen you on your journey, most likely made by foot. And when you got to Jerusalem, this was one of the songs that you looked forward to singing. Look at it, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. See, so this is God's claim, his ultimate goal. Um, this is why we as Christians have to be worried uh, and concerned about and involved in more than just our own soul's uh, redemption and future, but we have to be concerned about the material things in this life, the redemption of material things. God made it. He made it for a reason. Um, yes, it lives under the curse of sin now, but the curse of sin has been broken by the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we uh, declare this, we recognize this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And then comes the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place. This may be in question form what the whole lifelong pilgrimage of a believer is all about. The answer comes, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The answer to this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, is not the answer we're looking for. The answer we want, you know, I will judge you according to your actions, and I will judge myself according to my intentions. My intentions are always good. I don't want to hear that the answer to this question is the person, only the person who can stand on this mountain of the Lord is a person with clean hands and a pure heart. Because then the answer to that question is that nobody's going to be left standing. Psalm doesn't end with just the answer. In verse 7, 
there is a person that shows up. And the announcement rings out through the gathered crowd. Here we are. We've made our journey. We've come to Mount Moriah. We've come to the city of our God, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And we've been told that we don't have a right to come any further. And we might be tempted to just give up our journey. But then comes the announcement, verse 7, lift up your heads. Gates and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. I came uh, home yesterday, and Christy had gotten the Christmas stuff out. And I said, as brightly as I could, Oh, Christmas has sprung. And she said to me, without losing a beat it's not working and i knew instantly what she meant uh, for some of us we need advent if christmas is going to be meaningful to us the this year we're going to need to do the spade work and the sunday and the weeks to come what is our encouragement there is one who's gone before us. And he is the king of glory. And what we could not do for ourselves, he accomplished. Our hands could never be made clean enough. Our hearts never purified enough without the blood that was shed by the king of glory. So the crowd parts, king of glory and his entourage comes in, and the command is given for the gates to be open. It's interesting, when we get to the end of the story, living in a story in search of an ending, when we get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator tells us an interesting a thing about the 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. He says, when the gates are open, they remain open night and day, never to be shut. It is because the King of Glory has opened up a new and living way. Who is this King of Glory? Verse 8, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And you can think of this in, in the liturgical rite as the people are stirring themselves. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Father, we have no standing. We have no hope. Our story seems to have no ending outside of King of Glory who gave his life, Calvary.
maybe for some of us, many of us, most of us in this room this morning, we feel as though we're just ghost walking through our lives. That our story, our narrative right now doesn't seem to have any purpose. Father, help us to lift up our eyes to the hills from whence cometh our strength. Our strength comes from the Lord God, almighty maker of heaven and of earth. Help us in this Advent season to realize that you've gone before us. You've made a way. It is a narrow path. And it is an upward climb, Father. But you've sent the Holy Spirit to draw us upward on that path. We pray this year, Father, as we make our journey to this holy mount, that you would encourage us, cause us to draw with joy out of the waters of salvation a drink, an everlasting drink that will satisfy us to the uttermost parts of our soul. We ask this in Christ's name, the King of glory's name we pray.